Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. But for right now, one of our hosts, Jeff, a.k.a. Brendan Beefish, is absent due to work duties. He's going to be uh, back shortly. We're recording this on January the 31st, Sunday. He's going to be back in the seat in on Monday, February 8th. So we'll be resuming our regular chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast. But in the meantime, some of the, our great friends in the community have been kind enough to, to join me for some guest episodes. So please welcome back to the podcast our friend Matt, a.k.a. Joe Magician. Thanks so much for coming on, buddy. I really appreciate it. I'm really glad to do it, Emmett, although I am very unhappy to hear Jeff is coming back. The Emmett podcast Sigh. was much stronger, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> well, thank you kindly for lying in my direction. But it's true. We'll all have to tolerate Jeff's presence. I thank you for filling his clown shoes. <laughs> None could do it better. God love his clown shoes. Yeah, uh, I am, of course, uh, Matt, also known as Joe Magician. I have a YouTube channel of the same name at youtube.com slash Joe Magician, uh, where I post weekly live streams talking about kind of random topics it's kind of whatever is top of my head sort of like we're doing today and uh, in between every once in a while as i've been made fun of by my own fans i do post theories and analyses uh videos themselves so that's the whole joe magician shtick i would say you're a jack of all trades which is what i've always liked about your stuff you cover a lot of different topics within and without the series really well and uh, I think you're gonna. We're, we're both excited about the topic we have today. We, we talked about video games with Manu a week ago. We talked about Metal Gear Solid, and we're gonna have to shift gears, so to speak, and talk about a different video game franchise and one video game within that specifically. We're gonna do an episode about Final Fantasy Tactics, which uh, came Ooh. up in the conversation with Manu last week. One of my favorite games of all time, and uh, I, I know you're a big fan of it as well, sir. So we thought we'd get together to talk about it. It, I think it is my yeah my favorite game of all time too, it's, and that was one of those things well. mm-hmm. where every once in a while, any Song of Ice and Fire fan, um, especially on like Twitter, tactics will come up because there are quite a lot of overlaps in the story, um, similar style of storytelling, mixing of the historical and the um, the personal stories along with a larger magical plot, and it's one of the one of those things that I think that we should. We're going to proselytize it. We're going to make sure all Song of Ice and Fire fans Absolutely. go back and play Tactics, even though it's a 20-year-old game at this point. still holds up. Great story. And I think it, honestly, it has a lot to love if if you find yourself listening to the Nauticast and really uh, digging deep into very minor character interactions. It's one of those topics that will come up sometimes in the fandom and then like the thread will start to get endless because a lot of people are really enthusiastic <laughs> about it. It's like whenever <clears throat> it's like whenever uh, David Lynch comes up among a Song of Ice and Fire people because a lot of a Song of Ice and Fire people are also really into David Lynch. So then the conversation will start True. to get endless and the, the enthusiasm will come forth because I think a lot of people have really strong memories uh, tied to this game and uh, I'm, I'm certainly among them. But so let's, let's start uh, by pulling back a bit and talking about how we came to this game. So what, what's your relationship like to to the Final Fantasy series in general, Matt? Well, my, my relationship to Final Fantasy itself is kind of an unusual one because when I was growing up, my parents, for some reason, decided <laughs> that I could not have the... Um, the series and the video games that were the popular ones, the Nintendo games. I asked for a regular Nintendo. Instead, we got a Game Boy, mm-hmm. like the original uh, gray brick, which I have s- still hanging around somewhere that I found a few years ago with burst batteries in it. Uh, I wanted a Super NES, and it said we got a Sega Genesis. So as a gamer myself, I have missed out on quite a lot of the seminal series that many others have, like Mario, Zelda, Metroid, and the Final Fantasy series. Instead, I had 
the Sega Genesis sort of ripoffs or like the discount <laughs> versions where like, uh, you know, Streets of Rage, Sonic the Hedgehog, Earthworm, Jim, a classic, Road Rash, and of course the game that gave me my screen name. Not many people know this, uh, Mutant League Football. It's a parody game of the NFL. Joe Magician is Joe Montana from the alternate universe uh, San Francisco 49ers. Well, origin story. How about that? I know you guys are getting a treat today. You're learning the <laughs> why my name, why I call myself Joe. And my name is obviously Matt. And you know, there, there's, there were some Sega ripoffs of the Final Fantasy series, but um, the games that we ended up getting for Christmases and birthdays, or we ended up renting, uh, were kind of not those for some reason, especially the rentals. Because God, you remember video game rentals? That was oh, a thing. Remember that in previous centuries? Yep, I do. <laughs> You only had a limited time to play them. God, I'm actually dating myself. But mm-hmm. um, And then send them back. So you couldn't really get a game with a big story. It had to be something you could kind of play real fast and move through. And so I never really played the RPGs that were clearly ripoffs of Final Fantasy over on the Genesis. But that all changed for me with the release of the PlayStation. And suddenly this wealth of great titles that were previously locked only behind Nintendo were available for the the rest of the masses if you didn't own that one game. Uh, of course, one was the Metal Gear series, which you and Manu talked about excellently last week. <laughs> Thank you. And another of, was Final Fantasy VII. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was, this the release of that game, I would say, was a game changer in the gaming community. The marketing was huge. I don't remember a game ever being marketed like this, even when the Mario games were super popular. Um, it was absolutely beautifully designed. You know, except for, you ever go back and watch it and like every character running around is just like a series of oblong polygons. <laughs> it's true. Like it really looks little terrible. Little chunks. Mm-hmm. This like little, little arms swinging around <laughs> like matchsticks. It was, that was bad. It also had the legendary four discs. Young gamers won't understand. <laughs> <laughs> that was our, our Mount Everest for sure. Four discs in a game was telling you this shit was serious. Mm-hmm. I managed to get a PlayStation, managed to get Final Fantasy VII, and so did everyone else. My friends had it. We swapped stories about the weird little secrets and interactions you could find in the game, how far you could get before Ruby Weapon absolutely just crushed your face. Usually not that far. Ruby Weapon killed everybody pretty fast. <laughs> yep. Uh, it was, a, it was a, a revolutionary experience playing this game, especially because rather than just being an action game like the ones I was used to from the Genesis and uh, the Game Boy, those measured how good you were at it by button presses how fast you could do something and tax i mean final fantasy 7 was very different in that it's it's a thinking game it's it's more like an elaborate board game with the visuals behind it um and it had real story and characters like there's no story <laughs> to vector man or really <laughs> earth or and jim you're kind of just going through the motions um the cutscenes especially were they were honestly like a movie at the time the music was swelled and set the tone like like I had never seen in games before. And it also did something unusual in that it, it asked you to think and asked moral questions of the player. I've never experienced that before. I don't know. That, that was a completely new experience where a game was like, how are you reacting to this? Like, what do you, how is this interacting with your worldview? That had never come up before with me in video games. Like the closest was Pokemon, and it was like, sure. uh, <laughs> is it is it a good thing that I'm essentially engaged in dogfighting with magical creatures? That was that was like the closest right. it got, but Pokemon did not explore that until much later <laughs> in the series. 
it was truly i i know you have a love of moody's it was a cinematic experience to say the least absolutely and especially the idea that you were planning your battle step by step that really drew me in and i was like i wanted more final fantasy 7 was great but obviously there's more to the series and then i noticed that there was another game that had been released almost at the same time from final fantasy but it was called something final fantasy tactics which all the other final fantasy games had numbers i didn't what, what's this tactics about and you look at the cover and it doesn't really tell you anything it's a group of five riders going under a bridge on uh chocobos or how do you pronounce chocobos I say chocobos, chocobos, but I don't think I don't think there's any correct way to do it, and I think all all are welcome. <laughs> That's and my I know experience. chocobo people as well, so it's it's a chocobo, chocobo, Brienne, Brian. Oh, God help us if, if George <laughs> tried to pronounce this game. <laughs> oh right, I know that'd be a this, that'd be a wipeout. And this was one of the first games that kind of on that thing where I don't actually know how any of these names are pronounced because none of them are. Almost very few of them are real. They're all mm-hmm. made up fantasy names. So God help us That's as we true. go through this. But um, I didn't recognize any of the characters on the cover. But I did know that Final Fantasy VII was at its heart a strategy game. And there is especially like the um, the mountain strategy where you're you're like trying to defend it from invaders or something like that. And I'm like maybe they just took like the very strategic parts of Seven and made it into another game. And especially if you look at the the cover of Final Fantasy Tactics on the left hand side. There's a character that looks quite similar to Cloud Strife. I was like, oh my god, more Final Fantasy VII. This is great. Um, I could not be more wrong about what this game was. <laughs> Although I wasn't wrong about Cloud. True. It True. turns out he's actually in this game. God help him. They, that was an amazing addition. Um, I think I would say I had a crush on Final Fantasy VII, but I fell in love with Tactics. I think that's a perfect way to put it. I have a, a similar relationship to both games. And a, a somewhat similar relationship to games in general in that, yeah, my, my household is not super tolerant mm. of video games at first. Uh, handheld was considered more, I guess, less brain rot, I guess. I don't know because it was smaller. <laughs> and, I, uh, you know, something my dad could conceptually understand, I think. So, mm-hmm. you know, we, had, we had, a, had a Game Boy around the household. And not until, I guess, it was really when the PlayStation 2 came out. I think that was the first larger console allowed in my household. Just because I think there were a wealth of games available, and I think my parents saw that all my friends were playing games, so they're like, "All right, we don't want to make him too much of a freak. Just a, just a certain amount, just that sweet spot we're going for there." So yeah, at that, at that point we got we got the PlayStation Two, and one of the the flush games I got with that was Kingdom Hearts, oh, which yeah. was was a fun gateway drug. Looking back, what a marketing coup that game was. Whoever the genius was who thought, "What what? How do we get American <laughs> tweens into JRPGs?" I know. Let's populate it with the fun, safe characters of their childhood. That is, as a, as a move of sinister branding, that is that is a, a remarkable move. What but if we yes. don't make up a story and we just jam together every IP we own? Exactly. Into just a mosaic of nonsense. It's just, it's wonderful. But so I, I played that game and enjoyed it. And obviously that game is full of Final Fantasy characters, including mm-hmm. Cloud doing a cameo as he also does in Final <laughs> Fantasy Tactics. Cloud has been yeah. doing cameos from the get-go. That poor man. They just keep keep rolling him out. Despite not being that interesting. Exactly. Despite being a haircut and a sword. But <laughs> so there are a lot of Final Fantasy characters in that game, and it's very clear, even to my, you know, young half-formed brain, that they are referencing other games and referencing other stories that these characters are part of. And it didn't take much research to find out that that's the Final Fantasy series. And so I started with the the PS2 games, uh PS2 and PS1 games. 
I think I might have played Final Fantasy X first, but I played X and VII around the same time, and then VIII and IX after that. Uh, they had a, a kind of, yeah, kind of a mythic seriousness to the story. They took themselves very seriously, which looking back now, there are, there are definitely po-faced moments in those games where they're taking <laughs> themselves a little too seriously. But it was it was like catnip to my to my young brain at that level who... You know, loved reading about myths and watching movies that that took part in kind of ancient, timeless characters that I was just learning about for the first time. And Final Fantasy felt very much like that, drawing from a lot of real world mythology and, yeah, using cinematic tools to enhance the storytelling. But, you know, I still was pretty new to the mechanics of gameplay themselves, and I just wasn't very good at playing <laughs> video games. I'm still not, but I was especially not good then. And I think Final Fantasy Tactics, as you say, was a deeper love because, yeah, I found that around the same time I was just confused by it because it didn't have the number and it didn't feel flashy in a way that the other ones were. And it didn't feel like it was trying to push the envelope uh, in terms of things I recognize from movies and from myths. But it it taught me how to play video games themselves at a more granular level and in a way that was very specific to video games, even though it still had a lot of, as we're going to get into, a lot of uh, very cinematic theatrical plot elements. It was also, uh, I think it's aged really well because uh, the gameplay is so infinitely dense and flexible, as we'll talk more about. And so it, it really, it, it yeah, it, 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 it was a more kind of long-lasting love. Like now, yeah, I still, I still love Final Fantasy VII, but I will never love it the way I did when I played it the first time. Whereas Tactics, I think I've, I've come to appreciate more over time. I think one of the things that's really strong about Tactics when you compare it to the other Final Fantasy games is that the other Final Fantasy games are really on-rails narratives. Like, there mm-hmm. is an overworld, and you can explore and do other things. But once you do something, there's, there's really no going back. And there's not a lot of, like, customization to it. Whereas Tactics, one of the most common experience of Tactics players is going back and forth between different just bouncing back and forth on the map trying to get a specific thing to spawn or trying to level your character in a specific way or figuring out where you have to go into the stupid dungeon to have a character walk over to pick up a secret item that will help you in this way or even going back like we were talking about unlocking cloud which is an unbelievable like drop in for this game which i don't does that does that suppose that the world of final fantasy 7 exists in the same as ivalis Right, or that Cloud has somehow, you know, crossed over, or maybe this is just a dream Cloud is having while he's in, in <laughs> it, the the one of many times Cloud is in suspended animation. Final Fantasy Tactics is just That's a dream true. he's having. That's my new theory. He came from the world stream, which is apparently in all places, or the life stream, which is in all places. Exactly. But that's one of the things about Tactics is you can really put the quote unquote story on hold for most of the game and just sort of do what you want. And I think that really. um that really speaks to players and the ability for replayability because I, I, I'm sure like most other people, I knew I was about to get the end of the game where you're getting to the, the crazy portals and it's like, mm-hmm. oh, Ultima's about to show up. I don't know what Ultimate is, but it sounds bad. And it's like, okay, I'm going to go off and do my own thing for another 20 hours. I'll get back to this later. Exactly. It is, it's a, a completely different setup in terms of gameplay and that creates a different kind of mental map and a different kind of mood in the player as as, a, as opposed to something like ff7 which does uh ramp you up in a in a way that you can feel yourself being kind of propelled through the game whereas tactics is is, is much more open-ended and we're going to talk about the specifics of gameplay in that regard later but it is it was very much kind of conceived as a contrast to the rest of the series a, a breakaway in terms of rpg style and was kind of a, a long simmering uh, passion project uh, within the company itself but let's talk about the actual plot of final fantasy tactics because this is one of the big selling points 
and it's it's a very very complex Byzantine plot. And even after playing it through a couple times, there are still elements that I don't understand as well as others. <laughs> but I th- I think but I think the the overall thrust and meaning of it is clear, and I think uh, it, the game becomes a lot easier to appreciate once you once you kind of uh, uh, lay it out. So how how would you? Do your best to to summarize, or at least start summarizing the plot of Final Fantasy Tactics. Oh, this is like, uh, go ahead and explain the War of the Five Kings. <laughs> exactly. All right, exactly. we'll try this. Although one thing that, um, if you've only played the original, you should definitely try not not you, Emma, but the audience in general. <laughs> play the War of the Lions instead. Yeah. They did a very bad job with localization in the first one, so a lot of the lines and the the story that's coming through is very badly translated. They fixed almost all of it for War of the Lions to be much more um, cohesive and understandable, which led to much of our young brains melting. It's like some of the things they were saying just straight up didn't make sense. But anyway, um, so the plot itself. Okay, so this is there. there's several layers, but the, at the top of it is it's a plot within a plot that I know George R. R. Martin would personally love if he mm-hmm. ever played this game. This would be his Final Fantasy game. I think you're right. Final Fantasy Tactics is set up as the historian. Again, I'm going to butcher these names because they're not real. Arzalam Durai, who is trying to figure out the true history of the infamous War of the Lions many years later. Arzalam is a Septon Barth-like figure who is writing his dangerous truth. He had discovered a secret history known as the Durai Papers, named for its author and his ancestor, Oren Durai, who was burned at the stake as a heretic for writing it. So that's like the start of the game. That's where we're starting from. It's like, oh, by the way, the guy that wrote the story you're about to read, he was burned at the stake for it. Okay, we're setting the uh, we're setting the expectations pretty high at that point. And what we're playing is, especially when you take into account the later tactics games, I don't think it's meant to be literally true. Mm-hmm. I think this is meant to be uh, our, our Islam's, our Islam's book <laughs> using the derived papers to correct a historical record, historical record to show that the minor heretic Ramza, how do you pronounce this one? Is it Beoluf? 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 Yeah, it's clearly a semi Beowulf reference, but it's hard it to sounds say. Beoluf. Yeah. All right, let me try this again. Correct the historical record to show the minor heretic Ramza Beoluf as the true hero of the bloody conflict shadowed in lies and deceit by the church of Glabados. Already, this is kind of a very unusual setup for a video game because we're not even sure if it's true. And there's no backdrop in, like, if you're playing Vector Man, of unreliable <laughs> historical accounts that have been covered up by a powerful state and a historian trying to weave together the truth from conflicting, source, so, conflicting sources. It's almost like you're playing Fire and Blood. <laughs> but, like, if Septon Barth wrote it instead of, is it Gildane, I think, wrote it? Right, right. And all this comes with the backdrop of a broken magical world. There's hints of it all throughout the game, but are not really in your face. It gets slowly dripped in. You start going to a destroyed advanced cities like Machine City Goog, Gaug, Goog, whatever. <laughs> Again, running thing, me and Emmett are going to butcher these names because they're not real. Uh, ruined massive cities and fortresses, temples in the middle of nowhere, and hints about these Zodiac Braves and these Holy Stones. Now, the actual story that's going on beyond, behind this is the return of the godlike creatures known as the Lucavi, which sounds very Italian. It sounds almost like uh, like mafioso. Mm-hmm. I can imagine that's like that would be like the, the name of some council somewhere. Uh, but are there in later games they're known as espers, and these are essentially creatures that want to take over the world under the guise of the Church of Glabados and revive their leader Ultima. 
they broke the world 1200 years earlier in a very pact of ice and fire sort mm-hmm. of way the others the hammers of waters sinking an entire region and a city into the sea with the death of their leader the mythical saint ajora and since then the world has fallen into one of religious inquisition intolerance injustice and ignorance and that's kind of where we're starting it's this uh, interesting as you say kind of unique at the time storytelling gambit where we're starting from the perspective of all this has already happened and really all these characters are already dead long and, dead. and doomed yeah. and the only change is that can happen to them is in storytelling is in intervention is you know changing who these characters were and what they mean and we're going to talk a little bit more about how this kind of theme of, of of framing devices and nested narratives plays out within the within the story but it's it's such a constant motif that it ends up kind of being what final fantasy tactics is about is your your efforts to uncover what this world really means and your kind of inability to do that. And in some way, the, the the silly names kind of play into that because it's like you're looking back at a world that doesn't quite make sense or isn't quite yours anymore. And it's it's an act of history, but also myth. And yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great setup that is very different from the more kind of uh, visceral gut punch setups of other Final Fantasy games, which I think are trying to imitate movies more specifically. Like Final Fantasy VII opens with you're in a heist and you don't really know who yeah. you are or what you're doing, but you're in a heist and you're in a place and you're fighting people. Final Fantasy X opens with you don't know who anybody is, but there's this heavy metal music playing and there's Blitzball and the city's getting exploded and they're very gripping and that's not what Final Fantasy Tactics is trying to do to you as it starts off. It's trying to as you were saying, trying to make you kind of question your place as an audience member and what the truth actually is, which is something I was talking about with uh, Menu and Metal Gear Solid. And that's I think that's something you can see in video games stirring in the late 90s, trying to move the medium forward and trying to get into the mechanics of storytelling, which is what you know novels and, and movies and plays did, did before them. And you can just see that yeah in the backstory there. That's really true. And the, the even the setup itself of like most people played this when they were teenagers. That that's that was the target audience for the PlayStation, and most of us probably were sitting through history class, really bored. Sure. And then all the things our teachers were talking about about like, oh, you have to use multiple sources. Oh, secondary, original sources. And it's like, it's almost like it's a bizarre kind of take on history. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. It's in the same way, like I was saying, Fire of Blood, where George is trying to explain that, but that's not something that almost ever comes into video games, especially not at this time. It was. It was it was a groundbreaking experience to see something trying to be so intellectual on the PlayStation. Like the game, right. is, the, the the console itself does not sound like something that is meant to be intellectual. It's you're supposed to play on this station, basically. And it's like this game's like never mind. Instead of all the the wonders of Final Fantasy VII with the the steampunk magic and the giant swords, it's like we're gonna slow this down. We're gonna we're going to talk about a little history. We're going to talk about primary sources. I'm like, what the <laughs> hell is this? <laughs> yeah, that's a great way of thinking about it. It is, yeah, again, it's less visceral and it's less, it is It is emotional, but the emotions build up gradually over time. And as we're going to get into when we talk about the characters, a lot of the emotion comes from realizing how many gaps there are in these character stories and realizing how much you're not going to get to know about what really happened to them. And that's that's emotional in just a different way from, you know, uh, Squall and Renoa looking up at the stars and like Final mm-hmm. Fantasy VIII. And that's wonderful, too. But but tactics is, yeah, it's as you say, it's almost like like a different genre, like a different class. It's pulling on a, a different part of your brain. And, uh, you know, the the history 
as we move into the the main body of the story itself, there is even more more recent history that yeah. the, that is impacting the, the characters. So we have we have characters who are have been have been set up as already historical, already dead, and then when we go into their story, they're dealing with history too. It's unbelievable. It's a, it's a rushing nesting doll yes. of secret histories being written. God help us, the scriptures of Germanique, which <laughs> right. comes up later. I also think it's unusual, not just in the sense that it's supposed to be um, intellectual and, and looking at history and unreliable narrators and stuff like that. But most of us are used to when we're playing video games, it's supposed to be now. It's supposed right. to be happening real. That's like it's a real world yeah. that's happening. Present and tac- tactics is uh, it, it's it's a the story's already been written. It's already mythical, and it's it's a very clever framing device. Yes. It, it tells you already that what you're about to play is amazing. Yes, exactly. It's already become a legend. Yeah, I think what you said about the present moment of being now, I think that's that's what I was trying to get at talking about yeah, yeah, yeah. this in comparison to other games. It does... There's the the movie Barry Lyndon of the luscious period piece, but at the end there's this epilogue that says every everyone you've just seen they they lived and struggled during the reign of King George the Third. So handsome or ugly, rich or poor, bad or good, they're all equal now. They're all <laughs> they're all dead. And True. Final Fantasy Tactics has that that same feeling of immediately setting up that you know as as important as your choices are going to be in a lot of games about choices that this this is a story that has has already happened. So speaking of, of history, why don't you take us through the the uh, like Ooh. the more immediate backstory? So what when the, the, as we zoom in on the characters, what has happened recently in their world? Again, this is going to be as complicated as it possibly <laughs> gets. Uh, that's one of the things that honestly turned people off from Tactics when they sure. first played it is that the story is insanely complicated and it's told out of order and incomplete and it's only in the retrospect looking at all of them you can even piece together what the actual plot is the tenet of final fantasy i've i've done my best and so so start off with despite outwards appearances the 50-year war which is what starts tactics itself is not a struggle between warring nations it's a struggle between one family not uncommon in the European analog where nobilities and royals would often marry each other for stability. So one war against France versus Germany was actually cousins fighting, that kind of thing. But too long didn't read. The 50-year war, Ivalis was ruled by King Dinamda, going to call it that one, the second, <laughs> who engineered it so that their neighbor, or Ordalia, would invade the independent province between them, Zelmonia, thereby weakening Ordalia in war. With the support of the now angry Zelmonian nobles, King Damada, Dana, King Damada, God help me, <laughs> managed to get popular support for his counter invasion. Then, shocker, this happens quite a lot in this story. King Devane the Third of Odalia dies very conveniently, making his cousin Veroy the Fourth king. However, like I talked about, Denamda was Devane's uncle and claimed that he was the rightful king of not only Avalis, but also Ordalia and launched a massive invasion. So begins each kind, each side coming really, 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 really close to winning to the war, only for their kings suddenly dying for 50 years straight. This ends in the current timeline. Ivalis ends up losing this war and a puppet king, Andoria at Kachka III on the throne, but it's mostly being ruled by the nobles and through his powerful wife, which may have been the whole point of the 50 years war looking backwards, etc., etc., Game of Thrones. Nobles are always trying to increase their power, kings are trying to stop them, that kind of thing. King Andoria has two sons, both assassinated, running theme, 
And so his options for his heirs are his infant child, Orinus, and his adopted half-sister, Princess Ovelia. And boy, does this sound like a powder keg for a power struggle, wouldn't mm-hmm. you say? I'm a I perfectly sure set up. It's almost like someone did set it up. Weird. Right. Hmm. And then we go to the current story, and we hear about the infamous Corpse Brigade. They are a revolutionary group of peasants and low-tier knights who are very pissed at the end of the war. The new crown stiffed them for their pay for their service. Fifty years of war, destruction of their homes, their lives, and they got nothing. Absolutely nothing. Which... It's not totally surprising. Ivalis lost, meaning that they didn't get a ton of cash. They didn't get to loot Ordalia to pay off their supporters. So, like, yeah, I guess I understand. But when you look at the rest of the series, everybody's opulent. Clearly, the nobles did not lose their shirts and the Corpse Brigade noticed this. They are ostensibly the villains of the first chapter of the game, although the reason why shifts over time. Initially, they're the bad guys because you are playing as Ramza Bialuf, who is a noble, and they are trying to dethrone the nobility of which Uh he is a part of. But they're largely sympathetic. Workers' rights, peasants' rights. Yeah! Woo! Love it. Oh, hey, Ramza's best friend, Delta. Anyway, (laughs) Uh uh, the Knight Wegraf is your stated enemy, but it's actually Argath and your own family and it sets up a very interesting dynamic from the start of the story it's challenging because you're playing Ramza who's at the outside at the outside of the story on the side of nobility against the very kind of peasant revolts that led to the rise of our modern world of individual rights and the downfall of absolute monarchies and to make Ramza not only believe he's on the right side but he's defending his lifestyle and his own family against these rebels I mean who wouldn't want to do that you want to protect your own life, right? Ramza did nothing wrong by being born into a nobility, but it forces people born with privilege, who is the target market of PlayStation 1, uh, to confront their roles in the inequality of society, even if they are unwittingly doing it by playing through Ramza's story, challenging their preconceived notions about their role in society. I think you make a great point that uh, our perspective is challenged via Ramza. I'm going to talk more again about the, about the framing devices of that, but it, it immediately clues us in to not only the the terrible state of things in Ivalis, but how well intentioned people have blinded themselves to this. And you know, over the course of the game, both Ramza and the player have to be more aware of the changes in the backstory and the manipulations of power. But yeah, as, as you say, there is a, a analog to. Uh, European noble families to the kind of infighting among noble families that were were connected but in charge of different countries. And there is, when, you know, when you talk about uh, uh, soldiers being demobilized and sent home without pay and starting to get restive and forming their own units, there is a clear, I think, parallel to post-World War One, when, mm-hmm. you know, when the, the, the power of those noble families was really challenged in a way it hadn't been since the early, early Marxist years. And, you know, the, the, the whole problem of what to do with all these uh, demobilized, angry soldiers ended up producing, in large part, World War II. And I think you can see a similar arc happening here. There's also, in terms of, obviously, you know, this, this game was made by, by Japanese creators. And I think there is also parallels to when the, the, the samurai were disarmed or when they would have sword hunts where the, the new shogun would go around disarming everyone who might, might cause some problems. It, it's, it's a, I think, a common theme across a lot of cultures is what, what do you do? with the soldiers when the war is over. <laughs> and one of the worst things you can do is just completely stiff them and, and leave them to, you know, fester rage across the countryside, which is, is, is something that we see happening here. But it is, you know, that's not just uh, 
set up to give the the characters problems because it does end up kind of being the uh, the overall kind of driving focus of the story is what is this younger generation going to do about everything that has been handed out to them ramsa and delade as you say have to inherit uh this this like post-war scarcity society and determine what they want to make of it and i think there's they're they're constantly being brought up against older characters who have already made their choices and already been doomed in one direction or the other and there's there's the bittersweet kind of aspect because once again we're coming to the story late and so we know that rams and Della to have themselves you know made their choices and moved on but we're we're being shown what it is like to you know confront uh, a world that has fallen apart like this and decide what you want to do about it but so then we move on to kind of the, the the next phase of this destruction which is the the present day civil war we've got the the larger historical view you know provided <laughs> by the framing device we've got the backstory war that has already brought evilist to the to the precipice and then we have the actual fights that will consume final fantasy tactics so how does how does that civil war go sir well, to start off the story, you play, uh, we were talking about it, the, cam- the character Ramza Bialuv and his best buddy, Delta Hyrule. Um, and you are essentially framed as young knights who are joining the cause of the Northern Sky Knights who are... This is one of the things that I really miss from A Song of Ice and Fire, that in Final Fantasy Tactics, there are orders of knights who are ostensibly armies. Right, that's true. Rather than being sworn to a particular lord, although they are in this case, but they're doing it because of political alliances. There's there's standing armies that aren't just got household knights. I love that part of this game. But anyway, you are Ramza, and you are part of the nobility, and the story starts out with you fighting against the Corpse Brigade. And it turns out the Corpse Brigade was not quite the revolutionary group that you think they are the opening mission you go out to save the marquee elm door of limbury it turns out this was a ruse the second in command of the corpse brigade uh behind Wegraf gustav margriff uh had tired of his outlaw corpse brigade life corpse brigade life and been paid by your older brother dice Darg to remove the famous and powerful marquis for the ward by the way he's obviously sephiroth He's, he just is. He is Sephiroth. He even has a giant katana he uses in battle. That's, That's true. That's true. Anyway, the point of the Corpse Brigade thing that you don't learn until much later is that they are trying to sideline the powerful Duchy of Limberry in the upcoming war that everyone sees coming. And then you get to the, the unfortunate part of the Civil War and how it affects you. It turns out your older brother, Dice Stark, has poisoned your father to bow, has poisoned his father Balbanes to seize control of the family, and importantly, his older brother, who's probably definitely not Stannis Zalbag. <laughs> the Duke controlling it, Prince Larg, has, as we have talked about earlier, Prince Serenus. He's planned to crown him. Why? Because Larg is his uncle. Right. Larg is the uh, the Queen's brother. So that's yes. the, kind of the, the Queen's party being set up in, in this war. The other very powerful character is obviously Duke Goltana, who plans to crown the aforementioned Princess o- Ovilia. Mm-hmm. Not because of any connection to her, it's just that he doesn't have Orinus. So he's like, uh, I want power, therefore I will support Ovilia, even though I don't give any craps about her. Yep. He claims he loves Ovilia, but he doesn't care about her. Lar does not care about Orinus. He actually cares about his sister and ruling through her as the new... Yep power behind the throne and as you're saying rams's brothers are kind of a uh, work along similar lines yes uh serving prince larg mm-hmm. prince larg plans to, uh, plans to launch an attack on princess ovelia pretending that his men are goltanas to drive a wedge between the budding alliance between ovelia and goltana in actuality 
behind all this, as we were talking about with Ultima and the crazy magic Lukavi things, this entire conflict has actually been organized by the church in order to weaken the monarchy and get the nobles to kill each other and then to emerge as the dominant power playing peacekeeper between them. It's, as we said, it's a very complicated story and it's really hard to see because you're viewing this through Rams's eyes as the story goes along. None of this really comes into focus until chapter four, mm-hmm. which is the last one. At that point, you finally get an overview of what's actually happening. And I think that's one of the real strengths of this story because very often with magical conspiracies and honestly real ones, <laughs> you often have scenarios where people believe that everyone is in on it all the way down the chain. There's sure. everyone saying hail Hydra the whole way down. <laughs> when in effect, t- tactics is much more realistic because even though the Lukavi are demons, espers, whatever, they are really just focusing on a few people. The High Priest and the Knights Templar. God help me, the Knights Templar are actually in this game. The High Priest actually acts on his own from there, engineering this scenario we're talking about, where the nobles are incentivized to go to war, all the way down to the Corpse Brigade, with none of them below the High Priest really knowing the role of the supernatural manipulations going on. And I really love that, because... It's far more realistic and satisfying than in a lot of other games where there's kind of a mask off moment where everybody, somebody declares, oh, they've been on the plan the whole time. It shows a real intelligence of storytelling to make each each faction and character have motivations that are believable and logical, yet is still serving the overall story of the Ultima revival. Yeah, that's a great point. I think the the like everybody is in on it kind of thing works like for intimate like horror scenarios like if you're making uh, you know a hot fuzz or a get out where you're supposed to be paranoid about your environment and everyone's in on then it works but with these larger kind of conspiracy storytelling i think it works much better as kind of an an overlap of factions each pursuing their interests and kind of each all of them collating to serve the ultimate goal and i love i love the relationship between these institutions and between these institutions and then magic because i think you know, the other Final Fantasy games tend to tell stories about uh, social institutions that are just overwhelmed by the supernatural and just blown up and blown aside mm. by it. Like you have that in Final Fantasy VII. You know, you have Shinra and the company that runs the world and they're pulling out all the energy. And then behind the scenes, there's Sephiroth with his crazy messianic plan to, you know, wipe out everything and get reborn. And Shinra, as the game goes on, is just kind of like blown away by that process. Same thing in Final Fantasy X. Like you have a crumbling bad religious government but as the game goes on you you realize that the the supernatural backstory is really what's important you will overthrow the church in the process but that's not really what you're here to do what i think makes tactics interesting is that it really buries the fantastical elements and we can talk more about that when we get kind of a look in the gameplay it it, it wants to ground you much more in a realistic ish uh medieval setting and then but then the connections so then the supernatural just becomes another puppet master not really that different from the political machinations just larger and i think that's in some ways a more difficult ambitious but interesting story to tell is that you just keep going back and finding puppet masters and they each have their own little game and there is no there's no overall plan there's no overall plan and the and the human institutions never seem unimportant which is something again we'll talk about when we talk a little bit more about True. song of ice and fire that i think tactics achieves this balance where well, you never lose sight of how these larger struggles are playing out with the individual and how important these political institutions are just by virtue of what they make of the supernatural. And that also lends a certain integrity to, like, you know, you don't, 
again, I understand why these games do these things, but like games like FF7 or FF10 have protagonists that are conveniently blank slates because they're not really they're kind of manufactured people to a certain extent, which is convenient for a writer because then you can they can just reset themselves when they need to and they can have wiped out and fake backstories. But Tactics has this sort of integrity where it says, no, these are people established in their social environment. And even as the social environment encounters the supernatural, that environment still holds true and is what our story is about. And I think that's what makes all the complications worth it because there's a there's an authenticity to them and there's an authenticity to the scenario as it as it unfolds that i i think really works there's a real resonance between the different levels of stories i mean largely the story is ranz's loss of innocence and his trying to under trying to become a real person rather than just a tool of his family that's that's largely his story trying to um develop a sense of morality and justice but it's also the idea that like the conflict between the corpse brigade and the and the duchies and the duchies between each other and the church versus the duchies and the king and all these things at their core they're all really the same conflict that's going on with the lukavi and their invasion it's yes. just it's it's resonating down because it's about humanity and it's about how self-destructive we are and how we exploit each other and really that's the reason the Lukavi's plan works they're not in a lot of final fantasy games the invasions of the supernatural like you said are actually supernatural it's unclear what they want they're really just going to use their insane magic to overwhelm each other but in this sense it's a much more insidious kind of destruction of humanity using our own flaws against ourselves for their own gains. That's a very unusual Final Fantasy um, storytelling where often at the end of the game, you're facing a giant dragon angel thing that's totally unstoppable. Right. And that's, sort of, that's sort of true in tactics, but it really saves that to the last scene rather than making that, like you said, blow away the other plots. It is important to the plot of Ultima and the Lukavi that Goltana and Larg are going to war. And it's important to them that Dystarg is trying to overthrow Larg and all these other crazy things. And they remain relevant all the way to the end of the story. And then one of the through lines of, of the game, of course, is that all of these sides end up being manipulated by a character they never they never saw coming. Uh, Delita, your, your favorite. He's, of course, the one who, uh, who ultimately triumphs. And that's, you know, by the time you get to the end, you kind of realize, oh, that's what the story has kind of actually been <laughs> right. is, is Delida's rise to king even though if you threw a dart at a previous point in the story you might not realize that's the story you're watching because it's told from Ram's perspective taking us into the, the kind of the themes of Final Fantasy Tactics now that we've, we've done our best to to cover at least the surface <laughs> of the plot again god help me we could spend five hours talking about true. the plot there's and, uh, too much exactly and as Matt said yeah the, the War of the Lions uh, kind of the updated version is, 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 is much superior in terms of getting a lot of this across to you but to, to talk about the themes a lot of it, as we've been alluding, is about storytelling itself and how storytelling comes to have an impact on history and thus determines what we think about things. There is that opening framing device, as we were saying, that that posits all of this as a, a story being uh, told to achieve a certain kind of truth that has never been brought to light before. So as you say, it's not necessarily what literally happened, but a, a deliberate reframing of what happened to call attention to Ramza as a character. And that's interesting because it's like you have this in-universe character who is trying to correct a misapprehension about Ramza, but we don't have that misapprehension about Ramza because we're just starting the game. So you, you, simply by playing through this, you kind of learn what it is history must think of Ramza 
even as you are being given an alternate version. So you have to, you're constantly playing with what you know, what the characters know in the moment, and then what your presumed storyteller is trying to tell you. And um, among all of these, you have to somehow try to find the truth. And that's, you know, that's that's a fun gambit, but it, it, I think it has resonance because it's the characters are engaged in the same process. Like, r- once you get to, quote-unquote, Ramza, the character, he's telling his story out of order, too. Mm. He doesn't start with the the, the start of the, the World Alliance. He takes us back in what is in, his universe, in his universe basically a flashback to, you know, his youth starting off with Delita and, and joining the troops and uh, a horrible series of events with the Corpse Brigade and the Marquis that ends up leading to Delita's sister being killed. And we'll talk a little bit more about that moment later on, but that's kind of the first act of the story. And that, that's not actually hugely important in the big picture of the war. What matters what you're being shown there is this is how this society works. This is how this is the kind of things you get into. And this is who gets killed. And then kind of Ramza resumes the regular story. So you're, just, <laughs> you're being told like you're being shown how the narrative pieces are being moved around to show you something important. We're not just telling you linear beat by beat the story. We're pulling this out because this is what it all means. And we're all looking back to try to find what it all means. And that's not just what the heroes are doing. It's what the villains are doing, too. It's what the church is doing with their history of the Zodiac Braves which is the story that people think is about heroism and saving Ivalice, when in fact what it is about is about how almost was everything was almost completely destroyed by the church and their powers last time around. And that resonates with the political stuff, because people are being lied to about what the war meant and what, what they were going to get out of the war. They got screwed over, and the church is going to screw them over in the same way. Tell them what the Zodiac Braves are, and then pull the rug out from underneath them. And we see that, of course, with our, our two main characters, with, with Delida and Ramza, because the reason the story ostensibly exists is trying to restore Ramza's honor. So then so much of it becomes pivots on Delida's reputation and Ramza's reputation and what other people think about them and the stories other people are telling about them. And you have to contrast with what the two of them are thinking as you go through it. And then, of course, you, ha- you have the, the ultimate fate of, of Oran, who is the, the kind of the, the in-universe storyteller who is trying to get all of this out. And he he not only fails in the moment, he suffers a horrible fate. He's he's burned at the stake as a heretic, which is just, you know, of course, one of one of the worst ways to die. And that just kind of haunts the entire game. Like like the the source of this, the reason we're talking about any of this died horribly for it. And that just I think that's a great way of establishing the weight of storytelling and how it how it becomes the official line about history. Yeah. The especially the uh, the framing device and Rams that telling the story out of order. Mm-hmm. You kind of get the feeling. I don't. I don't remember if this is exactly true, but Ramza is also reading these uh, scriptures of uh, Germanique. I'm guess I we're going to pronounce it that way. Sure. Which, which is telling the real story of Saint Ajora, who is actually Ultima. And I believe that you're supposed to understand that the thoughts we're getting from Ramza are notes he made on the scripture, like the uh, the priest that gave it to him was doing it, which Oran then got a copy of, and then he's writing his perspective on Germanic scriptures, plus Ramses, plus his own, which is now being filtered through another guy 400 years later. It's it's really a, a rushing, like I said, it's a Russian nesting doll of like what actually happened. And I especially love the framing of, like you were talking about with Ramza versus Delta. We know obviously that um, Delta becomes king and that he's, He's supposed you think he's gonna be a good king, right? Sure. But then you realize that as you play through the game, Delta knows Oran, and he knows that Oran Durai uh knows the whole story. And so it must be during Delta's reign as king 
that Iran gets caught and burned as a heretic. Yep. So the question becomes, how much of a change did Delta even really make in this world if someone like Iran Durai is being burned at the stake for telling the truth about it? Or if you want to get even more sinister, did Delta, despite defeating the demons, become one himself? Mm -hmm. Did he end up helping Iran find his way to the pyre in order to protect his legacy and the start of his his reign and presumably his dynasty, since he obviously has no claim other than his reputation as the hero of the War of the Lions. That's a great point. It's like it's a closed loop where he he has to keep around around to establish his story. But once the truth becomes a threat to that story, then you have to cut him off. And that's just a great way of looking at the intersection of, of uh, storytelling and politics. It's like the line from uh, Liberty Valance, you know, when the when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. And that's 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 what Delita had to do, and it was was willing to commit violence to do it. And the the, the stakes of all this kind of uh, uh, narrative manipulation, in part, just as you, as we were saying earlier, is kind of a contrast to other video games, which are all about the visceral experience. And Final Fantasy Tactics is saying there is no such thing as an unmediated visceral experience; it's all buried behind time and perspective. But it's also resonant in terms of what's being covered up because of all this this narrative shell gaming that the characters and the the game designers are engaged in, and what's being covered up is like the just the raw stinking fact of privilege and institutional yeah. corruption. And there's a real catharsis, I think, in how this intersects with the story structure, in that so many characters are just trying to cover this up, just the the brutal facts of power when they're laid out for people. And there's so much just like courtesy and historical, you know, rummaging that, that exists to just to cover this stuff up. This this kind of a horrible structure of sacrifice that we see where the nobles treat those below them like they're not even people and that their lives don't matter and that they can be expended like pawns for the for the overall structure. And this again, this is why the story is structured the way it is, that we don't start with, you know, the outright beginning of the the War of the Lions. We start with Right before the war, we start with an example of this this kind of horrible systemic sacrifice and exploitation being carried out. And the I think the biggest example of this probably this is I don't we could describe it almost as a mic drop moment, but also sure. I think it's a critical moment of the story. There's a lot of other like important moments that happen, but the the battle at Zikadin for, Fortress when Delita and Ramza are going to try and save Delta's sister, Teta, who has been captured by the Corpse Brigade, who, as we discussed earlier, she's been captured by the Corpse Brigade because they've been interrupting his older brother's machinations in order to get Marquis Elmdor, blah, blah, blah. But the important thing is that at Zekanen Fortress, Delta, I mean, uh, Rams's older brother, Zalbag, who's in charge of the forces, showed up with the actual villain of the first chapter, Argath, mm -hmm. the pompous dick that everyone hates. Mm -hmm. And it is is such an effective character for how much you hate him, because he keeps trying to remind Ramza that you're a noble. These people are trash. You're above them. And Ramza's like, that's not true. That's not, like, my family's not like that. What are you talking about? We're, we're wonderful. We're great to everybody. Everybody loves us because of our quality. That's why we're powerful. And Argos like, no, no, you're, you're powerful and beloved because you guys are the best examples of nobility tramping on the small people, which Ramza cannot deal with. And this is so perfectly laid out at Zekin and Fortress because it's a little bit of backstory on their, on how Delta came into their family after the war and after the Black Plague broke out. By the way, Black Plague's in this game. Mm -hmm. um, Baldanes, the legendary father of the Bealive family, ended up taking in an orphan, two orphans, 
Delta and Teta because their parents had died and raised them as his own children next to his two his two his two trueborn children Dystar and Zalbag and his two I guess you would call them bastard children but he insists that they are his real children uh Ramza and his sister Alma and they are raised as a family unit and as far as Ramza is concerned and Alma Delata and Teta are family they are blood relatives they treat them that way but at Zeknan Fortress in order to get at at the second in command for the corpse brigade he has taken Teta hostage and Zalbag in a moment that truly just breaks your heart, tells Argath to shoot Teta, who is ostensibly his sister, as and Ramza's in disbelief that this happens in order to get at the second in command of the Corpse Brigade. He does it so coldly and walks off like it's nothing. And it's such a broken moment for Ramza because it realizes that these people that he thinks are his family, these people that he grew up with, his older brother thinks nothing of, that he thinks they are expendable. And that the truth that Argath has been trying to tell him about his family is not just is a misconception in his head. He has not really understood his own role in the world, the role of Dystarg and Zalbag. They're nice to him, sure, because they're his younger brother and they like his fa- and they love their father. But clearly, if he was not a member of the Bielu family, they would they would toss him aside. And there's a particular moment, Zalbag ends up being brought back to life later in the story to fight Ramza. It's a very it's a very tense and heartbreaking moment, but there's something that always rang a little that always stuck in my craw about this. This is Zalbag's last line. He says, forgive me, Ramza. I have caused you some pain. Alma, please save Alma. You are her only hope. For- Farewell, Ramza, and thank you. Okay. You're not thinking that about Teta, your other sister. Nope, because she... He only cares about his blood relative. Even to the end, even in undeath, even on his his last words, Zalbag cannot forget that he's noble and everyone else isn't. And they were pretending otherwise, that their father was pretending otherwise to Ramza and Delita. And so Ramza... In the same way that the, the, the player's eyes has to be open to what really happened in the past, Ram's eyes have to be really, op- really open to what his society is like. In the same way that his family is only pretending to be a family. This nation is only pretending to be a nation. They're only pretending to look after each other. In reality, they're, they're abandoning people. They're abandoning their own soldiers and they're abandoning the poor. And the church is basically abandoning everybody. In the same way, within the, kind of the, the microcosm of the Bayalouv family, uh Darg and and uh, Zalbag I, I just love these names are, so amazing. <laughs> they're great and uh they they are only pretending when it's convenient to treat Delida and, and Teatra like they are members of their family or members of the human family at all and Argath is interesting he, he is he's what, like among the most purely hateable characters in all of Final Fantasy but he's interesting in that he says he tells Ramza your older brothers are hypocrites they actually believe the same things I do but they are only pretending to around you because right. your, your father made this mistake from Argat's perspective of treating Teleda like a person. So now you, Ramza, you have this messed up concept of equality that we now have to stamp out and bring you back to the status quo. And we're going to do that by murdering this girl in front of you. Argath is talking to Ramza and Delita. He says, yeah, that basically when Dice Darg says he's going to save Delita's sister, he's going to spare her life and he goes after the corpse brigade, that he's lying. And Alga says, I not believe a word of that fairy tale if I were you. You call my brother a liar? I do. I would not go out of my way to rescue some common maid. He would be a fool to hold back an army for fear of spilling a few drops of your common blood. He's kicking aside the surface of courtesy and saying, no, this is, this is bloodletting. 
and I'm fine with that, and so is your brother. And 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 he, uh, of course, Ramza has to witness that, and that's the moment when uh, Delita breaks away and grabs his sister's corpse and screams, and it's like a pieta. It's this intense moment, and the build, the, the the castle blows up behind them, and that's kind of the break. And then we come back to like the present day where Ramza has not seen Delita for a while. So it's like this narrative break where where they both characters have to suddenly reckon with what their society is like. And then as the story goes on, you realize that this has kind of happened en masse to every group that they have, the, again, that the government has has uh, stabbed their own soldiers in the back and thus created groups like the, like, uh, the Corpse Brigade. So you have a situation where everyone is turning on everyone else and the, the church only you know promises to be a relief from this, something universal and something tender and merciful, but really is, is just playing the same game and is just as willing to, to sacrifice the innocents. Especially, I think one of the things about Argath that one line that always that always haunts me is that there's at one point where he claims that he should be a member of the Bielo family, that he's a better representation of nobility, a better representation of what Zalbag and Dystarg and even Balbanes was like in his life, and Ramza f- furies against that. He's like, "No way! You don't know them. You don't know what it's really like in Argath." from even from his uh low tier noble perspective is like i know them far better than you ever would i would fit in much better and it actually the comparison between them is really good as obviously they are both they are both blonde young nobles both doing the same job they're sort of interchangeable in that way and i love the way that the the writers of the story use that to sort of break your perception it's it's not only ra- uh, aimed at ramza it's aimed at you sure. you the player you're argath but you think you're Ramza from the from the role you're playing and the slow deconstruction of the ideas of like you were talking about the privilege institutional corruption and how you interact with the world. And I think that's one of the things that is so good about the Final Fantasy tactics like I was talking about earlier. It's that the demons aren't doing anything other than just pushing humans slightly. They're like mm-hmm. creating imbalances from the take advantage of and they leap on it. They give the they give uh, the high priest the ability. They give him these holy stones and says it will make you powerful and make you ruler of Ivalis. And he's like, "Oh, that's great! You guys will back me, right?" They're like, "Absolutely, we're totally on your side." And from there, it's just a, a bunch of dominoes falling where everybody's just creating situations for somebody else to screw over somebody else, and it just keeps happening. It's it's base human greed and desire of power that allows them to almost win and uh we talked about this a little bit earlier but the fall of delta mm-hmm. that's one of the things that really uh final fantasy games usually end with at least a bittersweet ending but delta's ending is straight up tragedy and it's this character you like you were talking about we saw him reacting to the death of his sister teta how he starts manipulating how he has this real revolutionary streak in them with like, I'm going to take down the nobles. I'm going to betray everybody. I'm going to change this world. And instead in the end, he becomes an avatar of it, especially with the killing of his wife, Ovilia. I think she dies. We're not, I've never been clear on that. Do you think she died from that stab wound? I, I always interpret it as such, but yeah, that's, that's the, the very, very end when we're almost kind of, we're literally past the credits. We're outside the constructed yeah. <laughs> story. And like this is the this is the one visceral like, real experience we get unmediated by history in the whole game is the king and the queen murdering each other. That's what it was yeah. all leading to. It's great. 
and especially the 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 burning of Durai. If he had actually made institutional changes, if he had honored Teta by breaking nobility and the and the powers of this world, Oran Durai should not have been burned as a heretic. Yeah, he was, and that tells you that while Ultima and the Wukavi were defeated, the the flaws in humanity were not. It continues being a a human drama, continuing ad infinitum. Despite the fact that Delta, maybe the best person to make the changes, could not and became and succumbed to the corruption himself. Ultimately, the truth became less important to him than controlling the narrative, and I think that's probably probably why Iran was burned. So, what about the, the themes on a more personal level? That yeah, the characters are struggling with. You know, the what's 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 really driving the division in the human heart. God help me, George R. R. Martin picked up on the same exact lines, and these are primary, <laughs> primary themes of A Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, the meanings of justice, loyalty, vows, family, these kind of things. Like, in, for instance, the leader of the uh, Southern Sky Knights, the Thunder God Sid Orlando, at one point knows that Prince, I mean, Duke Altana's cause is unjust and the church's. But he swore his loyalty and the and the might of the Southern Sky Knights to defend them during the Fifty Years' War. He can't go back on his word. What kind of man is he if he sure. breaks his vow? But he knows it's a unjust cause. He knows what he's doing is evil. Eventually, Orlando, unlike most characters in Song of Ice and Fire, finds his way out of it, joins Ramza. But that primary story of Jamie's, you know, so many vows, they make you swear and swear, is a constant, constant theme, especially for Ramza, where... Um, as we talked about in the, in the interlude between chapters one and two, Ramza has abandoned his noble birth. Nobody knows who he is except for uh, the leader of the mercenary company, Gafgarion. It's actually the sort of thing that ends up being a surprise to some of the members of his party later when it's real when they realize, wait, you're Ramza Bealoof? Right. It's like almost like saying, oh my god, it's Jamie Lannister. <laughs> that kind of thing. And not only his vows, but Ramza himself particularly struggles with the loyalty to the to his family mm-hmm. and to his social class, especially because, uh, as we talked about, Dice Dark, his older brother, murdered his father, and Ramza figures it out, and so does Zalbag, but they both still struggle with the fact that, like, he killed our father, but he's still family. We grew up with him. Can we really turn on him? And how far does this go? Zalbag in particular doesn't even find can't even investigate it himself because his vows to the Northern Sky Knights and Prince Larg are so strong in his in his personality that he has to rely on Ramza to go out and do the investigating for him. That he's a it's 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 a fascinating thing. You can imagine again. I talked about Zalbag sort of like a Stannis character. You can imagine him struggling with that choice the same way Stannis struggled with whether to support Robert or Ares. He has loyalties sure. that are being tested in a very similar way. I think Quarter Ramza's story is also the idea of what does it even mean to do right? And can you do it when it's the much harder path and you're going to get rewarded for nothing? Because that's kind of the story of the of the Duran papers as as we're being un, as we're being told them. It's the fact that Ramza is a forgotten figure. Nobody knows who he is 400 years later. Everyone knows King Delata though, the hero of the War of the Lions. He, this is just some minor heretic that, that disappeared. The church hunted him for a long time. Nobody gives a shit. It's only because the Durai papers came up that anybody even knows who he is right now. And God help us, the new Durai uh, might, be, might get burned for writing this history too. 
Ramsa has to make all these decisions knowing that it's a massive self-sacrifice to himself personally, his legacy, and even his loyalty to his family, which he ends up uh, personifying in Alma, his own mm -hmm. blood, his actually only true blood relative. On the flip side, you have Delta, who seems to, he's, in a way, he's kind of like a little fingerish character, where the way he manipulates everybody, he betrays everybody, but the overriding ethos of his strategy throughout this story is that the ends justify the means that when delta's king when he's betrayed everybody when it comes to the end he will fix everything he'll make sure nobody suffers teddy's fate again he'll destroy these corrupt nobles and it's really an exploration of that versus ramza's where in ramza's um thoughts the means are more important than the end right they're really it's very directly contrasted against each other I think that's exactly right, that you have Ramsa and Delita as, as these kind of opposing arcs. And they're they're both meditating on these questions of justice and loyalty and how you handle yourself when you realize your part in the bigger picture, when you realize how huge the systems you are wrestling with are. There's a, a kind of quiet, uh, crucial conversation between Ramsa and Delita early on in the game uh, where Delita says, something's been bothering me, Ramsa, for some time now. There are things beyond the power of our changing. Try though we might. And Ramza says, do not say that. If a thing can be endeavored, because, you know, he's classic and spunky. <laughs> and if you want to do it, you can do it. And then Delita says, will, will endeavor grant me an army? I would save his sister, Teta, with, with these hands, if, if all were in my power to do, but I cannot. Tis my meager, my meager lot in this life. So it's, a, it's about uh, powerlessness in the face of the larger forces around you. And we know he's right to a certain extent, because even though he self-actualized and became king, we're being told a story counter to his narrative so even when he had an army even when he has a bigger lot in life he's still not he still can't control the eye of the beholder tries he might by you know burning librarians alive yeah he still can't control how we see him in that story and so there, there is that level of powerlessness over what other people think of you and that applies to ramza as well because at this point ramza is a heretic and like you say a minor heretic not even considered a main character of the War of the Lions, and now we're being a, a reconfigured version of the story in which he's the protagonist, and you can see these these perfect character arcs being laid out. Because yeah, they move in such perfect opposite directions. Ramza starts out a member of a noble family and ends up, you know, minor heretic, maybe dead, just fleeing a nobody. Delda starts out being told by everyone around him except Ramza that he's not even a person, and then he ends up king, but he still hasn't he still hasn't uh, faced off against that that uh, essential question of his his personhood and whether he's even in control of anything. Uh, you, you see that right at the start of the story with uh, with Argath and the, the death of of, of Teatra. And uh, when Ramza confronts Argath about it, he tells him, you need to uh, awaken to the fact that we are different from them. We play lesser roles in life. And Ramza says, I, I will not be made a puppet. And that Argath says, long, long have we danced for you, that you, your family might reign on history's stage, a dance that serves our ends to be sure. The Beowulf name is our shield behind which we've long thrived. It's the way of things. People are used and use others in turn. How do you think you came to be where you are? And that's the big revelation coming for Ramsay, not only that he's in a place of privilege, but that there is no one individual who is in charge and has agency and control. Everyone is being manipulated by everyone else, and there's no end. So no one really has the power, and the only one who comes close is, is, is Delita, because he actually 
self-actualizes to a certain extent, but even he ends up completely corrupted and, and empty by the end of it. It's true. And especially one thing that always sticks out to me when you think about Ramza and Delta is that they are framed as opposites. I mean, Ramza is the acknowledged son of Balbanes. Delta is a nobody who more or less was raised with the family. But had Balbanes not been as kind as he was, Ramza's mother was just a commoner that right. he that his father fell in love with and then decided to raise the children as trueborns instead of bastard children. So in a real sense, the difference between Ramza and Delta is almost non-existent. Yeah, that's a good point. It's, it's only by the kindness, kindness of the nobles. Yeah, yeah it's, 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 a, it's a win. One noble. It's, exactly. And it's, it can, the floor can fall out from underneath you, just like how the soldiers thought they were fighting for their proper government in the Fifty Years' War and then got betrayed by them and abandoned. And that kind of dynamic plays itself out throughout the whole story. We see that with the, uh, the leader of the Corpse Brigade and his sister. And again, the names I'm probably going to get wrong now. They're vaguely Germanic. <laughs> Wegraf and Meluda, something like that. So uh, Wegraf is the leader of the Corpse Brigade, and yeah, which he gradually realizes has been turned against him and manipulated, and Malud is his sister. And they are kind of the the most direct access we get to uh, revolutionaries, you know, prior to Delita's rise. Like we're, you know, this is we're being shown this is this is what the state of revolutionary politics in Nivellus is like, and this is how it's being it being corrupted and and betrayed. And there's uh, they you you as Ramza and Delita have to hunt down and kill Maluda at one point, and it's again uh, like you were saying, it's a moment where the players' desires are being called into question. Like Ramza and Delita are both horrified by this. It's the one th- time where they agree. Ramza says, "Why? Why must it end like this?" And Delita says, "What am I doing? What have I become?" Neither of them want to kill this woman because she's she's innocent and because her and her family have been so screwed over. But uh, it's also an important puncturing moment for Rams in terms of what we were talking about of like, you know, individuals versus the systems around them. Whereas Rams asks Maluda, basically, why are you mad at me? I didn't do anything. Why this struggle? To what purpose do you fight? Have we wronged you? Have we somehow made you to suffer? I do not understand what fuels your hatred. And this is a classic real world thing where people want to, understandably, want to reduce everything to person to person contact. Like, I haven't been a jerk to you as an individual. So why are you angry? Why are you revolting? Why are you fighting? And Maluda has this great comeback. It is enough that you can stand there before me in ignorance of the misdeeds done us. You may not see the world beyond your high walls, but that does not mean they mark its boundaries. It may well be you've done no wrong. It is your place in the world that drives my hatred on. You bear the name Beov, and that name is my enemy. And that's, I just love that because that sets up Ramsey. Mm-hmm. It's not about you, the person. <laughs> It's about this entire network that allows people like this to be screwed over. As she says, Melita is like, the fact that you're in ignorance of the misdeeds, that in itself is the problem. That you have been kept up by these high walls and don't understand what your country is like. And you think that just because you've done no wrong that everything is going fine. And it's a, it's a zoom out moment that you, know, you have to understand larger structures around you and your place within them. And it's, it's a very telling moment that, that Ramza has to recognize this. His own culpability in what's happening around him even if he doesn't you know he doesn't directly shoot Delita's sister he would never cause that order but it's being done in the name of power he takes advantage of and he has to find a way as he goes along to walk away from that which is of course total contrast to people like uh to like Argath or or Prince Larg or his brother Dysodarg who are just pursuing power just because it's again just like a loop they want to be in charge because they want to be in charge and there's as you were saying earlier they just pretend to higher causes 
That's true. And there's a really great line from Meludo uh, during this whole scene where they're getting ready to, while they're struggling with executing her. And she says, I'm no more than chattel to you, am I? So have my head and be done with it. And it's with Delta standing right there. And in right. a, so a sense, Rams is being asked to kill somebody that is basically no different than his best friend, the, his best, his brother growing up with, um, which is, again, probably part of the reason why Delta is having such a strong reaction to it. He sees himself in her, especially for Delta, because he he was never he never forgot he was a commoner, but he definitely grew up with aspirations of nobility. They went yep. to the same schools. They had the same privileges. It was just he got made fun of when Ramza did not. And that was kind of their difference. And I especially love um, the after the death of Maluda and how that sort of radicalizes uh, Wegraf, mm-hmm. the, the leader of the Corpse Brigade. He ends up joining the Knights Templar and becoming one of the Lukavi. Um, turning into a demon at one point, and and honestly, one of the the most it's it's done in Final Fantasy Tactics low graphics, but it's one of those one of those scenes that really was set up so perfectly cinematically when the stone starts shining and mm-hmm. the screen starts rumbling and the music changes and he starts changing to this demon because up to that point it had been like he's kind of a low fantasy story. That's kind of like the others showing up in the prologue. True. But Wegraf only gets to that point because of the abuses of the nobles. And it's only because of the way they have usurped even his good cause, the Corpse Brigade, by getting his second-in-command to betray him. At the end of it, it, like you said, it all comes back to the manipulations of the mobility of the lower classes. And they have created their own enemies. Their world almost ends because they push Wegraf into this when he gave them everything. Yeah, that's a great point. They constantly create their own cycle of villainy, and you just imagine that they're probably going to do it again in the future. And it, it it comes back to these moments where these these characters have what's most important from them taken away from them, and they have to reconsider everything. There's a the wonderful line from Ramza at the end of that first chapter, until this sister is dead, that I think really sums up a lot of the overall game. I had lived my life the only way that I had known, but when the pillars of that life came crashing down, I did not stand and watch them fall. I turned and walked away. And that's you kind of see that play out over and over again. Also, credit to the game. That is honestly beautiful dialogue. It's almost the way you're reading it almost sounds Shakespearean in the way it's being told. It's a much it's a much higher diction than most people would be used to in a video game. It's true. But tell us tell us all about uh our, <laughs> our one true knight though. We're we're, we're being uh, very uh, very sad here on this episode. What's 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 a character we love? That's true. Going away from Dice Dog who's a uh, killed his father in a almost a Tyrion-esque way or Prince Larg who is trying to destroy a kingdom just so he can rule through his nephew who will probably one day betray him Coltana who is although this is that's one of the funniest things about Coltana is that Ovelia is not actually a princess she was invented in order to create a rival an option for Coltana to try it's it's so complicated but so brilliant but the the number one character the one we all love the Maybe the best person in Final Fantasy Taxes, I would say, is the knight of the of the Lion's Guard, which I think is the King's Guard version in this. Agrius Oaks, the brand dunk fusion, the character we always wanted to, what brand always wanted to be. And I think she works really, really well as a character because while Argath shows the very negative side of Ramza, his 
what the nobility does, how they exploit people, how he should be acting. Agrius sort of serves as the other side of that, the 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 following good causes, um, the believing in something bigger than yourself and believing that your vows and your knighthood will in some way help the world. Agrius is in a, in a way as naive as Brienne and Dunk, but that's part of the reason that she's so endearing and why she sticks around and joins Ramza is that she recognizes in him and he recognizes in her this kind of, this idea that it's important to do good to not for gain or not for some larger plot to put you on a throne or to gain you more power, but because it's admirable to be a a decent person in the world. And I love that about Agrius. I mean, it's also the fact that she's one of the few characters you get early on who has actual, like, really cool magic abilities. Her holy True. sword stuff is astoundingly good early in the game. She really carries your party, but I think it's her her character and also the way she reacts to Ovelia. Uh, she's, um, she's the guard for Ovelia, and she ends up trying to chase her down in a similar way. Brienne tries to find Arya and Sansa, the, the protection she has of them, but it's really just the goodness of her person and the struggles of the Kingsguard that we see in characters like Barristan and Jamie that is really exemplified perfectly in this amalgamation of those characters that I love. And Agrius Oaks is the best, I would say. Yeah, I love her a lot. As you said, you know, it's how the strong contrast to everyone else being so cynical and naive and embittered. You have someone with an actual goal driving to accomplish it. It just stands out so strongly in this universe. And I think definitely a character that you need because otherwise uh, tactics could could leave you cold for a while with, with without an emotional hook so bless bless the true knights i also think she's better than uh there's similar characters in other games like in tactic i mean in final fantasy 7 clearly that character is Aerith or Aerith as sure. you call her but the writing of tactics tactics makes her less a a victim of circumstance yeah and somebody that is trying to pave her own way you can write a story <laughs> You could write an entire game that is just from Agarus's perspective, and I bet it would be just as good as what we played. Whereas Eris's story is largely the is often seen as the damsel in distress, or the by the end of the game you realize that she's like the goal in order to save the world. So she's kind of like the turnkey to salvation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I I prefer this characterization for sure. I think that's a solid parallel, and I think it in part, yeah, I think maybe. Maybe just because the game is so much about sacrifice that that kind of character doesn't necessarily appeal. I think that I think Agarus works better here. So yeah, we're talking about the the holy sword stuff. So let's let's talk a little bit about the actual, <laughs> actual gameplay itself. The actual game. The actual game. What a concept. It's easy to talk about the story and the themes because they're so overwhelming. But yeah, the 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 mechanics of the game. So uh, Final Fantasy Tactics was in development for a few years while the the proper uh, canon of Final Fantasy with all its numbers were being built up on along. And you know they they uh, they were coming out like every year, year and a half back then so i think they were they were quite busy but um something the producer uh, hironobu sakaguchi had had kind of as a passion project for a while on the back burner in the mid 90s and then when they brought on yasumi matsuno who ended up being the director of the game that just linked creatively with him so that that was just kind of a, a natural partnership uh, pushing the final fantasy in a more final fantasy series in a more strategy rpg driven direction so instead of just like you know here's the line of your characters and then Five feet away. Here's the line of the enemy characters. Instead, you have this this uh, this uh, this map, like a three dimensional looking map that you can move around on. Uh, it's asymmetric. You know, obviously there were complaints at the time it could have been bigger, and obviously there were strategy RPGs that have pushed the envelope since. But this was a a big game changer, so to speak, 
uh, for, for the series themselves. You battle is, is you're turn based. You move around the little squares on the map. Your your magic spells have kind of an area of effect thing you have to keep in mind so you don't hurt your own people. And uh, the overall uh, effect of it is, is this overwhelming density. You have a really dense story, and I think that's matched with really dense gameplay that you have a bunch of different classes. You, you can get really minute with their stats. You can swap out your, your, your party members. I think uh, something I love is that even like your standard soldiers get a personality. Like if you remove them from the party, they'll like object and try to convince you to let them stay, <laughs> which I think fits the themes of, you know, every everyone matters. You have to highlight the people in the underclass who are getting exploited. But it, it, it ties you into your party and, and lets you feel like you're kind of a gang and a family, even for the ones that aren't like, you know, characters who show up in the cutscenes. Yeah, it really is a story that you make your party. You you play the other Final Fantasy games, you have X story characters to choose from. That's one of the really cool parts about tactics, like you said, that you can just recruit random people. That's so unusual in a Final Fantasy game where one of the heroes at the end of the game, like the one that swings the sword and kills Ultima, could just be a random person you found in a bar. That's that's such a that's such an egalitarian idea that really does not usually exist in Final Fantasy. And an important part of the game is that Ramza himself, obviously you're playing as Ramza, you play him in every battle. You have to have him in every battle. But one of the things that's so special about him is that he is not special. When you play him, there's so many other characters, like we talked about the Thunder God Orlando, Reese the Dragon, Beowulf, there's actually a character named Beowulf, Amelia Duel, who's an amazing... Um, she on her own has such a fascinating story with her father being the one in charge of the Lukavi who's been taken over by a demon or you can make these godlike mages out of characters but Ramza doesn't do anything special he doesn't have an omni slash he doesn't have a weird gun blade or anything like that he is just he's a basic character and I think that really marries really well with his character design because we learn that uh, he's seen as the black sheep of the family. Dice Darg is the smart one. Zalbag is the warrior. Alma is the the pious political one. And Ramses is kind of left in the cold. He doesn't have anything that's really great about him, except as we discover through the story, his sense of justice and the influence of his father on him of trying to seek equality. And you see that, again, with his character design. When you look at his brother, Zalbag is known as an Arc Knight, and he has access to almost every sword move. His other brother, Dysarg, is a Rune Knight, and he's even better. Delita becomes, I think he becomes an Arc Knight at one point as he becomes king. Ramza never gets anything like that. He starts as a squire, and you can end the game with him as a squire if you want. He never, he's never better than anyone else. Mm -hmm. And that kind of, that allows you to latch on to him in a way that I think is almost difficult in other Final Fantasy games where... It, it's really you playing this game. This is like if you, Emmett Booth, were dropped into right. Final Fantasy Tactics, how would you perform on the battlefield? Probably not great, but that's what you have to play with. That's what you have to work around. And I think those kind of character decisions, marrying story to design, is an excellent, excellent gameplay decision. There's the whole job class system, like I was talking about with the Rune Knights and the Arc Knights. Your character is not just Cloud Strife the whole way through. Do you want him to be a Time Mage? You can do that. You want to make him a Lancer that jumps through the air like a weirdo and then flies down with spears and stabs them through the skull? Yeah, that's a thing you can do. Every one of these characters is infinitely customizable to your personal taste. You're not 
You're not stuck doing Barrett's stupid arm gun thing the <laughs> sure. entire game. You can make you make your party whatever you want to. It also adds to the fact that even 20 years later, people are still playing this game and developing strategies. I went through and I actually read some of the wikis and the Reddit uh, subreddits about this, about how people play the game. And they have found ways to customize and make the characters par- powerful in ways I never believed. Like... Playing the game, did you know that the most powerful character class is the mathematician? I did not. I did not either. But it's apparently it is. It's yeah. yeah. There's there's infinite uh, interlocking possibilities of what you can do with a character because as you say, you can move them into different classes, and then the battlefield itself opens up such different rooms and, and strategies for you. I think it helps that you don't. There's not really like random fights in the way you have with other other RPGs, other games. You you can you like like you look on the map and it's like oh there's a spot where I can have a battle and you go there. And you mm-hmm. know that the fight is going to happen. But I think that's useful given how much strategizing they want you to do beforehand, how much setup they want you to do. They want you to pick when and when and where you're going to fight. I think one thing that also adds to it is that it is legitimately hard, especially yes. when you're a teenager. No kidding. I think all of, all of us have nightmares of the battle on the roof of Riovane's castle. Oh, Holy shit. I did that I one played, endlessly. Yep. So did I. Everyone failed at it because it's it's not just a check of your ability to make your characters. You have to be able to plan for the fight that's coming like there's an easy way to beat rio vane's castle roof but it's it requires you to plan the battle and you can't just brute force it a lot of final fantasy games you can brute force the fights at a certain point you can out level them you can get enough items that you're way stronger than everything and you just knock them off it's a it's a puzzle within a strategy at the same time and i think that's one of the things that really resonates for people who played it when they were our age when it first came out is that it really made you improve as the game went through. It wasn't just you mindlessly pushing buttons and leveling up your Omni Slash or getting Knights of the Round and then copying it seven times. It was like it really made you think about your character, how it should work, and how you have to attack the specific enemies in front of you. And they ended up putting that into uh, further games. But this was the first one, at least for me personally, where I was like, I suck at this. I really have to try and get better. And this is the days before the Internet was a thing. So it really was a personal experience unless you bought the uh, what was it? The, the guide. Oh, those, those guides. Book guides? Those books. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And they would tell you how to beat it. Those. You'd have to talk to your friends. You'd have to talk to you people at school. And that exactly. was I remember really that. work it out yourself. Yeah, it, it forced you to become smarter and to improve your skills. I definitely remember that. And it and yet at the same time, there wasn't one way to solve any given battle. No. Which is that's what, that's what makes it great. That that combination of difficulty and flexibility, which I think that's that's the sweet spot, but that's very difficult to pull off. And I think this this game did a great job. And talking about style, I think, you know, the overall drive behind Final Fantasy Tactics was to create a a more realistic kind of experience in terms of the, the look, the the setting, even the music itself. Um, Matsuno, the director, is talking about, you know, originally they had music that fit the uh, the producer Sakaguchi's taste. That was exciting, energetic, and upbeat music. But And he says, if Tactics had mainly involved humans versus monsters, then I think exciting, upbeat music would have been very appropriate. But in this strategy game, your opponents are other human beings, and that kind of bright, upbeat music wasn't working. Final Fantasy Tactics takes place in a hard, serious world, so I think it's only natural for the songs to be similar. Which I think is great, because it's again that what we were talking about, the integration of all the different parts of the game coming together that Matsuno thought 
It might be kind of dissonant or jarring even if I have these battles which are objectively sad things that the characters don't want to be happening, but the music is is exciting. So the Final Fantasy Tactics battle music is just is very martial and it gets your pulse going, but it's, you know, it's it's something that emphasizes the the kind of the brutal nature of what's happening. And I think that, that that's just an interesting artistic decision. I think you see that with the look as well. It's um it's much more kind of hand drawn and uh, traditional in a way that very much contrasts with Seven, which in a great way, Seven was, again, trying to look like a movie, as you're saying. It's very much, you know, the CG and the the, the, the polygon visuals and tactics looks like someone has painted it because, you know, it, that's that's what that's what they were trying <laughs> to emphasize there. And, yeah, uh, uh, Matsuno says he, he wanted players to find the battles intrinsically fun rather than only play for the story, which gets at what we were talking about earlier, that this was a game that was drawing us into its mechanics on their own for their own sake and getting us to master them rather than just mastering them so we can keep moving with the thing and you you just become uh, obsessed with getting that right and i love the idea that they were thinking through the the music and the visuals to to emphasize that and to, to make it fit i was actually listening to over the last few days it turns out the entire soundtrack is available on spotify and other places you can just go listen to them and i can i can listen to each song mm-hmm. and remember the battle and the scene where it's happening despite the fact i don't think i've played this game in 15 years and i think that really speaks to the kind of effect it had where i think you can listen to a lot of video game soundtracks um and it's hard to place them they don't they don't really stick in your memory but i d- <laughs> i remember every time that like a particular music comes up that it's like when ted is about to die or something like that and it's like Mm-hmm. I, I still I still viscerally feel it. And I think that really speaks to how great this game was. And one thing that's really good about it is that it's it feels like a real breathing world. It's something you can wrap your hands around. I have a hard time wrapping my hands around most of the Final Fantasy worlds because they are high fantasy in the sen- in the sense that they are not our world but slightly changed. They are something else entirely. There are there are no ruby weapons running around. There's no <laughs> there's no giant seraphs. There's no live stream or anything like that. Yeah. But tactics is based ostensibly in history itself, and I think that really that really captures part of why it's such a great game. Although I will, I'm going to throw out a little bit of shade here. Um, the later this is not the only Final Fantasy Tactics game that came out. There were two more that came out on the handhelds. There's Final Fantasy Tactics Advance and Final Fantasy Tactics A2 Grimoire of the Rift. And these are uh, these are personally for me, they were big letdowns. Uh, part of the reason is that because Final Fantasy Tactics is not a CPU, GPU intensive game, like we were talking about, it has simple visuals. It doesn't even have voice acting for the most part. They introduce some in War of the Lions and some cutscenes, but it's really, it's almost a game that's like, 10 years out of place which actually right. makes sense because uh matsuno as you were talking about his earlier games were called good god help us ogre fight and they were basically <laughs> the same games but um but he'd been making them since 1990 and he didn't really change it they just kind of made up a new story around it but sony and squaresoft essentially decided well we want to make another game because this was a big success and we didn't spend a lot of money on it but we don't really need to put this on the playstation one or two because look at it it's it's a very simple game we'll put it on handheld devices and then but then part of that came well if we're putting on handheld devices that's a very different target audience 
uh, the the consoles are meant for older people, whereas the handhelds are normally meant for the younger generation. So they ended up changing the story and the tone for these games in ways that, in some ways, almost kind of ruin the original game. Uh, like for one thing, the the plots of uh, Final Fantasy Tactics Advance and A two are Ivalis itself, but instead of being a historian looking back at a real historical record and having it all be real, these are instead essentially daydreams of bored children that have fallen into magical books. The The cities aren't in one place. You get to choose where the cities are. You get to design the map. All the characters in the story of those games are the ones from the characters' real life that have somehow magically come into this one. And it really undercuts the feeling that you're playing are lived in world. They also overcomplicate it in ways that I really don't like. There's a judge system with laws where like, if you use this kind of spell or this ability, you can get a red card and ejected for like how many turns or something like that. It, it, it really became more of a childlike game. Whereas the first one was so clearly something that challenged the audience and was making a much more mature story than the uh, follow-ups. It struck me what you're saying about how it was, a lot of it was just dictated by the move to handheld because, as always, you know, the medium is the message, as Marshall McLuhan tells us, and that's really true with video games, that what kind of console you're going to bring it out on, if you know that in advance, changes so much about the kind of the tone, and then that changes so much about the story because, yeah, it moves in like a like a never-ending story direction, which I guess would be fine on its own, but, yeah, it's 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 disappointing in the wake of, of the space tactics clearly laid out for itself as being something different and something more grounded and something that would just pull you into the uh, minutia of strategy rather than allowing you to create everything yourself, which yeah, I agree. That is, that is somewhat disappointing for sure. Although they did give Matsuno more chances. He made the critically renowned Final Fantasy 12, which um, with several, I think two follow-up games. And those are essentially, if you want to play the actual follow-up to Final Fantasy Tactics, the original, rather than playing the handhelds, I would go play Final Fantasy XII. They have a very similar job system. They have a very uh, similar depth of strategy and the way of interacting in the world. And it's an Ivalis. Uh, it ended up becoming known as the Ivalis Alliance. There's a whole series of games that take place in this one world, which I always find is funny because unlike most, tech, like most Final Fantasy games, uh, Matsuno was allowed to make up this world whole cloth. So we want to conclude by talking about the most relevant thing for our usual uh, <laughs> podcast focus, and that is connections to A Song of Ice and Fire. We also did this with Manu when talking about Metal Gear Solid. And I think there are really a lot of interesting connections between A Song of Ice and Fire and Final Fantasy Tactics to the point where I think they're, they're kind of drawing maybe from similar historical and literary sources and I think trying to get across a lot of the same ideas. The most obvious connection is the inspiration by the War of the Roses. That you see this in the uh, the skeletal structural outline of A Song of Ice and Fire, where the Lancasters and the Yorks that, that fought in the War of the Roses in England have become the Lannisters and the Starks. And you get the War of the Lions in Final Fantasy Tactics between the black and white factions of Princess Goltana and Larg, also pretty clearly transposing the, the fight over uh, succession in England. And I, I th- you know in both cases, it's not an attempt to just retell the War of the Roses because the War of the Roses in itself is not super interesting. What it is, <laughs> it's very, it's a very useful storytelling structure because it sets up two clearly opposed sides and lets you kind of work through them. And in both cases, I think in A Song of Ice and Fire and Final Fantasy Tactics, it starts there and then gets progressively more interesting as both storytellers are like, but what's really going on besides this little binary? That's true. And I think one of the things that makes uh, War of the Roses such a good thing to start off with is that I think a lot of times when we hear about like great historical wars, there's always the um, the justification for why it happened. 
the the Cassus Belly as if you play Crusader Kings uh, <laughs> for like why this thing happened. And the War of the Roses is really just a story about um, the greed of the nobles. It's one family member fighting the other. There's there was no like great evil that was done and that's why it happened it was just like well we can take the throne so we're going to try and then they tried they killed their own family members to do it and it makes for such a a better human story that you can frame things around because it allows you to tell more complicated characters than like we obviously we praise agrius oaks as a character but she only works in contrast to the darkness and corruption exactly like ramza needs delta and he also needs argath and those these characters and the the framing of the War of the Roses provides that for you. It especially lets you look back on your own history. I mean, obviously, uh, as we talked about, Matsuno is from Japan, so he's dealing uh, with the the fallout of World War II yep. and the the loyalties of the Japanese people to the emperor who joined the Nazis. And that's a very hard thing for a lot of people that grew up in that society to learn because much like um like we see from Ivalis and the Corpse Brigade and even the um the fall of the nobles, it was like we are we were on the wrong side, but we still are ourselves and we still have our identity and how do we deal with that? Yeah, that's a good that's a great point. It's about, you know, how do you keep going after after you're already done, after the war is over. It has a kind of postscript hangover feeling you also see in the song of ice and fire with robert's rebellion the sense like oh we did our story we did our grand saga and now it's over and it didn't work out like we hoped and we're all still alive so what do we do and yeah that that connection to world war ii i think is strong uh with arnold schwarzenegger gave his little talk recently he brought up he used the phrase broken men in relation to ex-nazi soldiers he knew in austria who were just drinking themselves in despair because of what they'd been a part of and that same sense of Society gears itself around war and people in power stay in power through war, but they don't want to have to deal with the human costs of it. So they, those tend to get shoved under the rug. And you see the exact same thing in Final Fantasy Tactics with the Corpse Brigade and the soldiers who have been screwed over after the 50 years war, gradually realizing the power structure has no use for them. And so, as you say, with Rigoroth, he kind of turns to supernatural power in the hopes this will allow him to get revenge. The idea of the broken men themselves is also incredibly important in, the, in Tactics because we learn it's not just a side effect in this world, it is intentional yes. that they yes. have broken the peasants, they have broken the lower knights, specifically because it stops them from organizing against the nobles. Like, it's an endless cycle of violence. The wars do not just exist for their own power. It's to make sure that nobody can ever rise up. We learn in the aftermath, um, not only does Delata fail to overhaul the kingdom and fix society we learned that the corpse brigade rebellions continue to happen for generations that nothing has been solved in this and that's sort of the recurring theme of the song of ice and fire where uh, myself and others love saying that george tells the same story over and over again you know like robert robert baratheon is obviously aegon the fourth who is also garth greenhand and all they're all resonant to each other but it's not just because george isn't creative it's because that's an important part of history and society. It just keeps – it's the Ouroboros. It, it's the uh, the dragon eating its own tail. We seem to never learn the lessons or they never seem to stick for too long. And the broken men aspect of it is an important part of that. It's almost like tactics is <laughs> – if you, if you wanted to break down the story itself – it's like the Fifty Years' War is like the first three books, but sure. Tactics is a feast for crows and a dance with dragons. That's a great way of thinking about it. Absolutely, it's that that fallow period where 
war seems to offer opportunities to change things because it breaks down what currently exists. But the nature of war makes it so that those opportunities are taken by the worst people or are taken by people who lose their better angels. Because, I mean, yeah, the war, you know, there, like there's no way Delida could have ever become king without a huge war. Like there's no way the institutions could have ever made room for him without all this chaos and factions needing him to turn on the other one. But at the same time, by virtue of coming to power through war, Delada sold his soul and lost what became the best part of him. So it's this, as you say, this 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 horrible cycle where along the way to get power to change things, we lose the human heart that would have allowed us to change things. And we end up just preserving these kind of disparities and gaps between us, both in class, but also in time that we just now we, we can't go back. And that's one of the primary stories of characters like Stannis. Yes. Like you can see Delta and Stannis as very much similar characters. I mean, coming from different backgrounds, but the way they're approaching the world and the way they're trying to fix it. I mean, Daenerys also falls down this path as well. You can, I mean, a lot of people don't want to see Daenerys become a villain in the end, but George has very clearly laid out that the, the young idealists who are trying to change the world by using military might often end up, um, kind of like Delta selling their souls in the end, or they lose track of it because they get wrapped up in holding on to what do they have in order to make the changes. But that becomes the, their bigger focus over time. And um, it's even something that you see with a young pure heart, like Jon Snow, sure. where he's become Lord Snow and he's become the Lord commander of the night's watch. And he's slowly losing track of who he is as a person because he feels like he has to fill this role in order to save people. Um, I always, I always was trying to figure it out when I was reading it back. There's, there's some elements of Jon Snow and Ramza where obviously Ramza gives up his family name in order to become a mercenary because he is disillusioned. That's part of the reason Jon joins the Night's Watch. He is, he knows he will never be a true Stark, and he wants to find his own place in the world and develop his own, his own story basically. But there's, unlike, <laughs> unlike Jon Snow. Ramza's story goes the other way, and it ends up being more something like Brienne, which I don't hmm. think most people expect. It's almost like the story, the story goes from Ramza then transitioning into Delita. There's the 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 unexpected outcome angle where Ramza basically decides to not be important. Like the whole story yeah. is like highlighting, hey, Ramza was a big part of this. He was more important than you think. But in his own time, Ramza decided to just walk away, which is similar to John. I think we saw a version of that in the show where. John has all this weight placed on him as the king in the north and R plus L equals J in the Night's Watch. But at the end, he decides, I don't want to be important anymore. And I am just wandering into the woods from which we all came. And I think there's that similar, you know, Ramsay just rides off. Last we see Ramsay, there's a, there's a graveyard and he's just riding off. Delado wins in the sense that he gets to be important and in charge, but loses in the sense that he lost everything for, for which he was doing that. And yes, I think you see that classic. What does it profit a man to gain the world but lose his soul? There's the line from Stannis where he says, like, uh, what is it? I thought I needed to save the world to get the throne or something like that. Do you, right. Do you he thought he needed line? to win the throne to save the kingdom. And now I know I need to save the kingdom to win the throne. Right. Which is like he's, you know, he's he wants to do the good thing, but it's still ultimately in service of power. And I think we see the same uh, thing work itself out with Danny. And it, it's it's not and it's not even like. Although both Stannis and Danny and Delida all do things I think are bad. I think it's less like, oh, they turned out to be evil all along. And more that there is no right way to do this, actually. There is no proper way to take charge of everyone that we've all just been missing because we're evil. No. You, you you make your deal with the devil. You try to make it as good as you can. But there there is no good way to take over the world. And I think both the Song of Ice and Fire and, and Final Fantasy Tactics 
kind of kind of have that animating idea, which, as you say, I think is drawn in part from World War II, in the sense of like, how how, how did we end the war and save the world? Well, we did it with a nuke, with two nukes. So even even that action of we win, we have victory, we've achieved world peace for the moment. Even that was was a horrible action that created broken men and disparities. So there's sort of the the underlying selfishness of the the power to save the world. For instance, um, like we were talking about, Ramza decides to save the world from the Lukavi and Ultima largely because he believes it's the right thing. Delta helps him, but he helps him because he wants to continue. He wants to rule the world. Right. So it's not actually like coming from a place of morality or um, belief in the right thing. It's that he cannot continue his journey to power if the world is destroyed by weird demons from another dimension. <laughs> right. What would he have to rule over? You're right. That's, that's so funny. It's so bleak. Uh, another thing both stories have in common, as you were alluding earlier, is the the feigned prince or princes thing that Ovelia turns out to be a fake, that she was just a plant so that Giltana would have someone to use. And we see a, a lot of variations of that in A Song of Ice and Fire, you know, with uh, Jane Poole not being actually Arya, uh, Bran and Rickon, you know, being swapped out by Theon for the, the peasant boys that he then murders. And I think in... Both cases, it's just a it's a it's a it's a wild twist for the audience. I think it gets at the way power works, where it doesn't really matter who you are or where you come from, as long as you can perform the role, then that's all that matters. And that that dovetail that dovetails so well with tactics because all of tactics is a story being told to us. So who cares that Princess Avelia wasn't Avelia? Did she perform the role? Did she play the job? Well, that's all any of this is was a performance. And it's that same shadow on a wall theme I think you see in A Song of Ice and Fire where there is no pure nugget of power you're just going to get to. It's, it was all always an act. And so, you know, you get like, like that great thing at, at, uh, in the main cast where we're doing the Battle of Blackwater. And you get that great ending to the Battle of Blackwater where, quote unquote, Renly's ghost shows up. Now, that's yeah. not <laughs> Renly's ghost. That's just Renly's armor. But does that matter? Nope. Because everyone's dancing around talking about Renly's ghost and oh, to be a knight. And that's the shadow, the shadow on the wall at work. Does it really, does it matter that Ovelia is not who she thinks she is? Well, it matters a great deal to her, but not to anybody else. And I think it's that, yeah, that intermixing of the personal and political you see in both. One thing that I, I especially love about the famed princess, Thar- uh, we talked a little bit earlier about how it turns out that, you know, Ramza and Delta are not actually special, that in most society, in most households, especially of the Beolov's power, Beolov's power that they would be uh, essentially cast out kind of like john but there is also a part of it that is very subtle and it doesn't you only hear about it right at the end of the, the game and i love the way it's dropped in because it's not overriding you don't at no point does ramza or alma think that they are important to the story for their bloodline in any way they are just trying to do what's do what's right and save their family because of the interpersonal connections, but it turns out that it, those two are actually the important ones of the Beale of family, because it turns out through their mother, I guess, um, right. they are related to, um, St. Ajora, the original host of, a, of, uh, Ultima and Germanique, who also, who wrote the scriptures. And it turns out they're, they are preordained in a way. And that's the reason that Alma is chosen to be the, um, the host for Ultima. But I love that way that it works in the sense that it's very much a Jon Snow way where a lot of people think he's going to save the world and he is the prince that was promised and he's RLJ, but he doesn't know that. He's going to he's going to make his mark on the world because of the teachings of his father, much in the way Ramza feels about Balbanes. And 
a personal sense of justice and morality that he has uh, he has nurtured over time into being a quality person. And that that message, I think, really works well, especially when you talk about how the plot of the Lukavi and what they're trying to do is essentially they're trying to do the opposite. They are trying to find the Chirera of Saint Ajora, and they're trying to bring about the magical end. And they're playing they're playing that plot line. That's a yeah, that's a great way of thinking about it, that that contrast between doing what you think is right in the moment and that becoming a story later versus self-consciously trying to engineer a legend around yourself and how that leads you down a bad road. And we see that with the Song of Ice and Fire, of course, that, you know, part of the big problem with Team Stannis is just the idea of Azor High. And then if they didn't have that there at all, maybe they'd be a lot better off. And Danny too, is dealing with the idea of who she should be and where she should be. And that, that brings her into trouble. And that, yeah, John, that, that's the great irony with John is that all that, those narratives dancing around here, we're the only ones that know about that, not Jon Snow. Ramza is, is the, the one with closer access to a noble family, but he is, he's the one whose story ends up kind of dissipating and Delitas is the one that holds. So the last one is that um, I really like the inclusion of the Lukavi in this versus most of the Final Fantasy games and, and the connection in the way that George writes the others in that. Uh, we we touched on this earlier that a lot of times when you have a fantastical plot, the fantasy eventually overwhelms everything else about it. They are trying to change reality in some way. They have unstoppable powers that everyone must band together to stop. Now, the others do have that, and so the Lukavi in the sense that they are supernatural. But the way that they are trying to take down humanity and root for themselves is really just pushing humanity to do what it already wants to do. Right. Um, the others... Part of the reason people get confused about their <laughs> what they're doing is that like they've been sitting behind the wall for thousands of years just kind of waiting and they're kind of pushing Mance but it's it's not really clear what they're doing and I think in this I think their plot line is sort of similar in the sense of Lukavi that they understand people and they know that if they just get them to fight each other in a particular way and get them and engineer the situations just so slightly that there's like a falling of dominoes of people trying to take advantage of the situation they're creating, that they will be able to take advantage of that and push their goals forward. It's not like they're going to invert reality into like it, into some crazy way. They're not going to like rip the life stream out of the ground or anything like that. It is just using the fundamental flaws of humanity against us. And I think that's, that's a much stronger story and one that I really love about A Song of Ice and Fire. The way that the tempting of power and the use of magic is underlies exactly how much we would abuse it if it was real. I think that's a great comparison, that it's the, the, the magical elements in Final Fantasy Tactics don't want to change the world, really. I mean, they, I think their effect would be apocalyptic, but that's not really their goal. They think that this is just the way things are and the way things always should be. And there, there's a terrifying kind of constancy to what they're trying to do because it, it exp- exposes the Ouroboros flaws of humanity that are just going to keep re- reoccurring. And I think you, d- you definitely see that in A Song of Ice and Fire. There's all that talk about wheel be- time being a wheel and the characters being versions of each other in those archetypes, like you were saying earlier. And that, yeah, that the there's this the combination of menace, but also odd passivity with the others, where they are introduced at the beginning and they have the most like terrifying stuff in the story once when you get to a storm of swords and they attack on the fist of the first men but they're not doing all that much and it's pretty clear as you go through the stories that they're not going to be able to do anything until humanity 
fucked up in some way yeah Yeah. and whether that involves euron or whether that involves bran or something at the wall itself there's plenty of discussions to be had but it's becoming pretty clear that that's the case the others are not going to be able to overcome our defenses we're going to let them in somehow and what what is that going to say about us and i i really like that as 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 you know again i still love final fantasy 7 but i do think there's something more interesting about that kind of story structure as opposed to there is an all-powerful, omnipotent being that has been manipulating everything, and everything else now seems pointless. Like, there is a catharsis and a rush to that, but I think there's something more interesting and more realistic about what we see in A Song of Ice and Fire and Final Fantasy Tactics, which is that our our grandiose impulses and our petty impulses actually come from the same place, and they're not opposites, that they're kind of the same. And that's something George likes in his now vampire novel Fever Dream, which we're covering for patrons. The main antagonist of it, Damon Julian, is on one hand the most terrifying creature who's ever lived, because he's thousands of years old and just eats everybody and is just a pure predator. But as you learn more about him, you realize he doesn't even do anything all day. Like, he doesn't have books, he doesn't have relationships that make him happy, he just kind of sits there and waits to feed. And then you're like, oh, that's that's so deflating in an interesting way. And I think that's also true of the, the 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 magical powers behind the scenes in A Song of Ice and Fire and Final Fantasy Tactics. They are terrifying in what they can do, but they also show you just the end state of power in which you're just sitting there and waiting to eat somebody and you're not like, you're not happy. And I think that's interesting. I think there's a really good comparison in what you're talking about in terms of the Lukavi's plan cannot work if Larg and Goltana do not pit airs against each other. Right. If they de- right. if they decide to work together, if they both get behind Orvinus, the child, and say, he's the heir, I'll work on this some other time, I'll find another way to get power, the end of the world cannot come. And it's the same way that the others cannot get through the wall if the Night's Watch does not hate the wildlings. If right. there's not inherent racism and power structures between them that they are exploiting. There has to be human conflict for their plans to work. And I think that that works so much better as exposing something about ourselves and the way our world works. I think so too, because you don't want to lose the menace because I think part of the reason we get into storytelling, there's a you know a primal thing like we want to see something crazy. We want to see something wild. We want to see something that's beyond our experience. But at the same time, I think good stories then draw those things back to our experience and, and draw those connections and say this this ineffable, unknowable Lovecraftian thing Really, that's just you. That's just your subconscious and things you don't understand or like about yourself. Especially when it takes Jesus Christ and all his followers and makes them actual demons and know, scourge right? on the world. I mean, that, that's also a very atheist perspective or there is also that. perspective. Um, that's one of those underlying themes, I think, of tactics that works super well that George also copies for A Song of Ice and Fire. A distrust of organized religion and the corruption of original teachings and messages for power although tactics does it a little bit differently it turns out that um they tried to make a jorah and his followers seem awesome when it turns out they were actually demon controlled and the <laughs> they they were trying to bring about the end of the world but even still it's it's a fascinating critique of the real world that again you don't expect especially in in a video game but it's it's very plain in tactics and as well in a song of ice and fire the way george feels about the Catholic Church, and clearly tactics is a response to the Catholic Church as well. I agree. It's that that desire to deprogram us in terms of the Messiah complex. And I think that has real-world connotations, but it, is also, it also is just about storytelling, that you should not instinctively try to project yourself into the one perfect person. 
I think Tactics and A Song of Ice and Fire both call that into question. And for me, and I think for you too, was Tactics was one of the first kinds of stories I encountered that did that. And and it, it definitely left in me a desire for more stories like this. So I think I would st- I think I would love have loved A Song of Ice and Fire if I had found it under any circumstances because it is just that great. But I think having experienced stories like Tactics, I think prepared me to I think un- fully understand a story like A Song of Ice and Fire. So I am I'm great- grateful to the game for that. One thing that also uh, changes over time is I think as I've gotten older, my favorite characters from Tactics, a song along with the Song of Ice and Fire, have changed That's over time. Yeah, I think everyone liked Ranza at first, but eventually I liked Delta more. But then that was sort of like a rebellious phase right. of my life, okay. and it's like ah, oh, smash, smash things. Ah, oh, the world's unfair. <laughs> right, right. And okay. then you end up having sympathy for different characters, like. Looking back on the Corpse Brigade and, and uh, Weegraf's story, it's actually quite a deep and satisfying tragedy, that character's story, but he's your enemy, and the game tells you you have to kill him, and I know, like, I feel like he's being done wrong by so many parts of the story, and I don't know, it, it's kind of like when you, uh, he's almost like an anti-hero character, and Ramza, over time, has sort of fallen away i guess in my in my uh understanding the same way for a song of ice and fire i think most people their favorite characters initially are the the main protagonist you probably have john snow or danny one of the others tyrion. or Tyrion. yep one of the three and over time they change like my favorite characters these days are probably aemon and brianna dunk sure i don't think i would have started there reading that book and i think it's the same thing for tactics it allows you to explore different parts and find different parts under uh to appreciate i i couldn't agree more i love i love stories that change as you change stories that are specific but open-ended enough that you can come back to them and then realize how much you've changed because yeah like it says something that you if you go from Tyrion being your favorite to Brienne being your favorite like that's a journey you have taken and i think that's that's something amazing stories can do for us and tactics that becomes the point of tactics because it is a story that has taken a journey to even get to you the the, the player and it has changed along the way, and so have you. And uh, I hope that, you know, I, like you, I haven't actually played, ta- sat down and played Tactics in I a long time. To. I want I'm to. I want to now. And now, <laughs> when, when we do, I'm fascinated to see what, what we'll both experience and discover completely new because we have changed as people. I'm going to read the actual things on the screen a lot more. When I first played it through, uh, you're used to, in, in most games, to skipping through the dialogue. Of course. Blah, 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 um, blah, blah. Yep. You want to you get to the good part. Or actually, there's a, there's a thing in recent games where they allow you to speed up the text on the right, screen. Right, right. I would always do that. But I almost want to see somebody like, write down all the dialogue or or screen together all the uh the cutscenes and stuff like that and see if you can actually like what would it be like if you tried to watch tactics as like a short movie or something like that yeah or if you tried to point. read like it. like there's the they do that for metal gear solid they got like just metal gear solid 3 the full movie you can just watch on youtube just the, yeah for tactics that would be interesting to see that would be very interesting if you anybody knows about something like that exists and i couldn't find it just right. at me bro exactly hook us up <laughs> So uh, I think that's going to wrap us up for episode of Final Fantasy Tactics. Thanks again so much for coming on, Matt. I had a, I had a blast doing this with you, and uh, I appreciate you, you you being here to swap in for Jeff. So thank you again. I'm very happy to elbow Jeff out of the way to talk <laughs> about uh, talk about a video game, which Jeff actually right. I bet he would really like Tactics. I bet if I bet he Jeff had the would time, enjoy it to a shameful degree, like he wouldn't be able to admit how much fun he was having. You know, especially the battle tactics. I think he'd be probably into that. Your good point. I'll have to introduce it to him now. So uh, tell the fine people at home, Matt, where they can find all your stuff. 
Absolutely. Thank you, Emmett. Uh, you can find me at the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Joe Magician on Twitter at the Joe Magician because somebody else stole the name and I can't get it back from them. Mm-hmm. How dare they? Um, you can also find me on the Maester Monthly Podcast, which I do with the fellow Song of Ice and Fire mods every once in a while. Sometimes Jeff is even there too, to our infinite chagrin. Um, <laughs> And uh, let's see. You can also find the podcast feed feed version of my streams and my videos at the Wit and Wisdom of Joe Magician. Um, there's all sorts of different ways to find me. There's a link tree on my Twitter if you want to see all the things. Um, I just want to thank you again, Emmett. This was this was so much fun. I got to. I, I'm going to go play. I'm going to go play it today. Ah, I'm going to go do it. That's great. So yeah. So thanks everyone for listening. Obviously, go check out Matt's stuff if you haven't already. Although I suspect many people who listen regularly regularly to this podcast know and love Matt already. But if you if you don't, go check out his YouTube channel. It's awesome. Go check out Maester Monthly. As I said at the top of the episode, Jeff is going to be back in his chair on February the eighth. We might have one more guest episode that comes out between now and then. But uh, yeah, starting on Monday, the February the eighth, we'll be back in line with uh, the Battle of Blackwater. In the meantime, as always, you can check us out on Twitter at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F or shoot us an email at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter. You can find Jeff at Brendan Beefish. Uh, you can find the podcast, it's, uh, podcast itself on Podbean and SoundCloud and iTunes, etc. Leave us a review if you have a second. We really appreciate that. It helps us more people find it. Once again, thank you for listening.